HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Dylan Hoyer reporting from Torino, Italy, where I'm a delegate at Terra Madre's Salon del Gusto, the largest international event dedicated to good, clean, and fair food, hosted by Slow Food International. More than 3,000 people, including farmers, cooks, and food activists from 150 countries have gathered to discuss the politics of what we eat. I'm very excited to welcome a physician, activist, artist, and writer, Rupa Maria. She is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, founder and director of the Deep Medicine Circle, and co-author of a book titled Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice Together. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. So your work poses some really interesting central questions. And one I wanted to start with is, what if we saw farmers as stewards of our health? Can you explain that to me? How do we see farmers now? And what do you think needs to shift? Well, that goes to how we see food and the food system. Um, And in the last 600 years, um, through the dawn and progression of colonial capitalism, food has really been used as a tool to coerce labor and to advance the um, agendas of empire throughout the world. Um, That means our agricultural systems are based in the same supremacist, extractivist mindsets um, that give rise to policies that are literally destroying the soils of the earth, um, contributing to climate change, and um, making people uh, food insecure for people around the world, as well as um, involving damaging labor practices that do not value the work of farmers and farm um, workers on the land. So we um, at the Deep Medicine Circle are, are advancing a, a food systems model that we call farming as medicine that really flips all those dynamics on their head and, and is prototyping what an economy of care would look like. And that means looking what what farmers do. So if a farmer could um, have the time, energy and support to take care of the soil that um, brings the health to their and vitality to their plants, they would. Um, but in a capitalist economy, they don't have that time and energy. They're, they're trying to extract as much as they can from the soil, from the plants. 
So if we reframe farming as an act of care, um, not only of growing healthy food um, for communities, um, but stewarding our soils and water, adapting our seeds for climate change to get things ready for what's already happening, then we have a, a different kind of food system um, where the work of farmers is really seen as the front line of our healthcare. So let's get into some of the backbone and theory that shapes these ideas. Your work is very much about changing our perspective on health and food and history. Your research surrounding deep medicine, like you said, has this central thesis and it makes a direct connection between contemporary afflictions like the disproportionate rate of harm caused by COVID in communities of color and to colonization. So how do you craft this bridge? Talk a little bit more about that. Colonization is um, the latest wave of colonization, I should say, because colonization has happened throughout human history. But never has it been paired with such a damaging economic system that has led to the point of um, destruction of the stable ecologies around the entire planet. And so it's important to recognize that it's not simply colonization, but it's colonial capitalism. And that's what we talk about in our book, um, the book that I wrote with Raj Patel that you mentioned. And so when we look at what is required um, to advance this economic system, it required the um, enclosure of the commons in Europe. It required subjugating women and removing them from their places of authority around specifically food, birthing and medicine. Um, putting them in the household, the invention of the modern household. Um, people who resisted were burned at the stake. Um, so this was um, a, a project that started again 600 years ago in Europe. And the people of Europe had to be colonized through this capitalist framework before the rest of the world was colonized. And so when we look at the land theft and the labor theft that ensued around the world, it is not a surprise that the world is now um, crumbling under the weight of an economic system that the earth and its living systems actually cannot support. And so as we're watching the wildfires, the droughts, the catastrophic floods, the mass movements of human, humans um, in these sacrifice zones of climate change, we're seeing the end result of what started 600 years ago. And one of these a focal point of evidence here is inflammatory diseases. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right, well, when we're talking about these systems, these are systems that create a lot of damage. And when we look at the impact of this damage on the body, the body responds to these kinds of systems with chronic inflammatory disease. So inflammation is the body's way of healing in the face of damage or the threat of damage. So in an acute inflammatory situation, when you have a paper cut, the body's uh, damage signals are activated, cells are mobilized to that area, and they release cytokines and other chemical mediators to heal that wound. And once the, the, the wound is healed, that inflammatory response goes quiet. But in the event that that damage keeps ongoing is ongoing, that chronic inflammatory response keeps burning. And then what was once a healing response ends up doing collateral damage in the tissues and becomes a damaging response itself. So when we're seeing that damaging response in all the diseases of modern industrialized society, so from diabetes to Alzheimer's to cancer to high blood pressure to stroke and heart attack, 
um, to depression, anxiety, all of these diseases are, are associated with chronic inflammation. And so when we look at them as individuals and say, okay, you just have to eat better and you won't get diabetes, these are your individual choices you can make that will help you avoid these chronic inflammatory diseases, that's all well and good, but that doesn't explain why you have rising rates of these diseases throughout the world. Billions of people are not making bad choices. It's the structures around their bodies that are creating an onslaught of damage, whether it's the destruction of a forest, whether it's the impossibility of eating well because you're, you know, you are um, forced to have food choices from conventional agricultural offerings and ultra-processed foods. So the, this economic system that is driving our food system right now is, is making it impossible to avoid these diseases. And because of how all-encompassing these ideas are, I'm really curious about the process of how you develop them and what kind of research and ideating you were looking at and grappling with and how long the, this work has been in the making. I would say for myself and Raj, um, it's been at least 20 years of our work um, through traveling and working as activists with communities around the world who are struggling for the right to be healthy. They're struggling for the right to control their circumstances to be healthy. And so what is health? Um, the way we think about health in modern culture is it's an attribute of a person. So this person's healthy, this person's unhealthy. And what Raj and I really came to understand in our book is that health is a phenomenon that emerges when systems are harmonizing well together. So you can't have healthy populations if you have ecological collapse. Those things can't exist in the same space. So in order to have healthy individuals, you have to start working upstream to look at the structures that are making health impossible and getting in there and wrangling with the necessary power struggles that it will require to make health possible for not just humans, but the more than human entities that our health depends upon. And it's interesting because when I think of just my personal experience with the medical establishment, it is so individualized. You go into your personal doctor, you get a personalized diagnosis. I'm curious how you think physicians may need to change their practice and whether it's a matter of you know, individuals changing what they do, whether it's a matter of collaborating with other structures. What do you imagine that looking like? I think it means that healthcare workers need to start more intensely organizing to address the systems upstream. So yes, we should continue to give excellent care to individuals and we should continue to counsel people on diet and exercise, but we shouldn't stop there because that's what we call colonial or shallow medicine. It actually atomizes people as if these things were all unrelated. You know, just all these people are making bad choices. But it's, you know, not a choice for someone to have to work the night shift. It's not a choice in the United States for students to carry debt. Debt is an independent driver of chronic inflammatory conditions. And so if we are structuring our world to make young people sick as soon as they get out of college, what kind of world do we have? So doctors need to get involved with canceling all student debt. Uh, healthcare workers need to get involved with demanding a fair, just, and equitable food system. We need to get involved with forcing our uh, cities and counties to provide housing, not warehousing, but housing for all individuals, because we know that without these things, people get sick. Um, and so that's uh, a critical part of this work. 
And you'll hear people say, oh, well, medicine is not political. It's not about power. It's black and white. It's science. And that's just a, 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 a part of the colonial brainwashing. In fact, medicine is a tool of colonization. And it has always been deeply political. Um, who gets health care and who doesn't get health care? Once you're in the system, who gets good care? Who doesn't get good care? Um, and these are things that are playing themselves out today, um, where we're seeing that surgeons who are male in the United States who have female patients, those female patients have worse health outcomes if they have a male surgeon operating on them. Whereas female patients operated on by women surgeons, female surgeons, don't have any difference. Um, there's no difference in the patients of female surgeons. Why is that? Well, patriarchy is a part of that colonial mentality. It's a part of that supremacist axis of domination, and it always has been. So it's not a surprise when we're seeing that black babies die when under the care of white doctors. That's not a surprise. It's horrific, but it shouldn't surprise us. And so what needs to be done is that the power structures in medicine need to be changed. It's not about more DEI trainings. It's not about more um, let's be anti-racist and, and, and go to some personal individualized therapy. It's necessarily power structures must change, which requires organization amongst people. Yeah, the collective aspect exactly. of what needs to happen is very interesting. And you mentioned you had a talk at Terra Madre yesterday, two days ago, called Deep Medicine and Decolonization of Food. And someone asked about the reception to your work. And I, it was interesting to hear that it's been very mixed. It's grow, like the acceptance of it and excitement around it seems to be growing. And there's also some resistance, which makes sense as well. I'm, can you talk about that, those different reactions that you're seeing? The resistance is coming from white male people in medicine who have a lot to lose in their minds by, um, you know, in their perspectives, by opening up to the rest of the world who's not white male and, and, and property. And the white male propertied people in this world were the ones who colonial medicine was set out for. That's who, who it stood to benefit from the very beginning. It's not like they developed hospitals in India to take care of Indian people while they were pillaging our communities and stealing $62 trillion worth of wealth from our nations, from our communities. <clears throat> They set up those hospitals to take care of the colonizers so that they wouldn't get sick in India. And then when it became clear that uh, the subjugated indigenous people wouldn't deliver as much wealth from the plantations if they were all sick, then they were like, oh, maybe we should take care of those people too. So keeping workers healthy, which we see in COVID, is only as much as it needs to be in order to keep the economic engine going. If it's any more than that, then it, it doesn't happen. And so we see the sacrifice, the sacrifice of workers around the world through this mentality and system. So who's not excited are the white male empowered people in medicine who think that they have something to lose. Um, and I would just say to them, and these are people with, you know, Martin Luther King quotes on their walls. You know, I love Martin Luther King. Um, but, but they don't understand how their, their resistance to these ideas is part of the same legacy of maintaining white supremacist structures um, in the world. And it's time, you know, it's beyond time, it's way past time that the global north starts repaying the debt that they stole from the global south. 
so that those communities can be safe in the face of what's already here, which is climate change. And on the side of who's embracing your work, can you share maybe a story of what kind of action has come from a group of people getting familiar with this work and doing some organizing around it, perhaps? Oh, so many things. Um, gosh, there are nurses um, who really love this work because it validates a lot of what they have been saying for many, many years. And part of deep medicine is dismantling the hierarchies of knowing within medicine itself. That actually nurses who are at the bedside of our patients have a lot of lived knowledge which should be brought into how we work and treat our patients through policy. Um, if nurses were in charge of the pandemic response in the United States, we would not see the tragedy that is unfolding of disability from long COVID, nor the death rates that we've seen, which are highest in the world, some of the highest in the world in the United States. So um, I think that it's exciting to see the nurses. It's very exciting to see the medical students who've been um, hungry for this kind of analysis. And it's been beautiful to watch uh, physicians around the world uh, reach out and, and ask how they can implement some of these ideas in their communities and how they're organizing. So it's, it's just, it's a tool. It's a tool we fashioned a tool to be used not only in medicine, but most of the practitioners of deep medicine aren't doctors. They're community members who are working to change their circumstances to advance health. Yeah, so let's talk about deep medicine and practice a little bit. One way you're putting it into action is the deep medicine circle. Um, tell us about this nonprofit and what the practices look like day to day there. The Deep Medicine Circle is a is a organization we started in the wake of the pandemic, in the midst of the pandemic, to specifically heal the wounds of colonialism together between indigenous and non-indigenous people on stolen land. How do we heal the wounds that we see through food, medicine, story, restoration, and learnings? So if colonization has created fractures and damage, separating people along axes of supremacy, removing people from the web of life, decolonization and healing means reintegration, repairing, reconnecting and, and re-entering um, sacred relationality with one another and with the web of life around us. And so that is the work that we are doing. Um, one of the more concrete examples of this is called farming as medicine. So in this work, we are flipping the food system on its head and it, it, it's, it's four things are involved. The first one is giving land back to Native American folks. So we are moving a 38-acre farm back into the hands of Ramatush elder Kata Gomes with her organization, the Muchiate Indigenous Land Trust. She's doing language restor like language revitalization, cultural revitalization in returning to the land, which has been beautiful. The second part, I should also say that it's not simply just giving land back, it's it's seeing the world through their framework. So as we're farming on part of that land, the ways in which we farm are necessarily through a lens of respect, reverence, reciprocity with the earth that is growing the food and, and helping us with creating this beautiful food. Second part is that we reframe farmers as stewards of our health. 
um, through their acts of care for the soil and the water and all the beings that are participating in the growing of the food on that land, um, including the great blue herons that walk down the paths every morning and eat the gophers <laughs> so that our, our crops can thrive. Um, and, and, and also through growing nutrient-dense food through agroecological practices. The third part is we decommodify the food so we give it all away. We remove it from the logic of the capitalist market economy and return it to what it has been throughout human history, which is a medicine. The fourth part of our program is food is medicine. And that's not simply you know, an individual prescription, um, but uh, a systemic change. So that when food is liberated from the capitalist mindset, then people can re-enter that, that relationship of care, that we can give each other food when people are hungry. So in the territories where we work, hunger was not known before colonization. Hunger is the product of policies that manufacture scarcity. These are, this is not a, you know, a physical reality. We live with more wealth on planet Earth where I live than any other place on, in, on, on the globe. There's so many wealthy people, yet 25% of people are skipping meals because they don't have enough food. So that is a manufactured scarcity, which is a hallmark of capitalism. So if you can show people are hungry, people will get back to work. They'll keep their nose down and get back to work. But it, let's say you removed that specter of hunger and you just made sure everyone was fed. What kind of different choices would workers make? Would they continue to participate in a system that's destroying the earth? Or would they maybe decide some other things based on what's important for the health of their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? So Thank you so much. And I know you've done really extensive work with indigenous communities. How did you create these trusting relationships? There's a book by uh, Malcolm Margolin called Deep Hanging Out. <laughs> that, that's how, through deep hanging out, uh, through spending time, through showing up, through throwing my weight behind the things that they prioritize, um, through learning, through being humbled by what I still need to learn. Um, and then showing up when I'm called. And thinking, sorry, ultimately oh, no, go it goes down to making friends. So I have a lot of respect for the people that I work with. Um, and over decades, you make, you make friends. You make friends through showing up and, and being um, willing to learn. In thinking about this interview, I found myself thinking about where we're sitting right now which is in a post-industrial park in Torino called Parco Doro. Uh, for a really long time, it was home to car factories. Uh, in the 2000s, it began to undergo a shift. The river flowing through this park was uncovered from entombment. And in 2018, it started flowing freely. And for Terra Madre, this represents their theme of the festival of regeneration. And it just felt like it had this connection to your work. And I'm just curious, how you're thinking about where we're sitting and how you're thinking about this theme of this entire event of regeneration. Where I'm staying up the hill, um, so this around this region, there was a lot of things built for the Winter Olympics in 2006. And all of these immigrants um, who are refugees, many of them climate refugees, who landed in, you know, here in Italy, occupied those buildings and took them over for housing. So I think that's awesome. I think all Olympic buildings around the world 
should be repurposed to house climate refugees. I think that's a great way to, uh, to use the millions and millions of dollars that are spent building these Olympic villages. Um, so I think that it shows the creativity and the, um, the wherewithal of people to address their material needs. Um, it also shows the um, welcoming from some people in Italy of these people. Unfortunately, tomorrow is the election where it's a right-wing, you know, candidate from the fascist origins post-World War II is slated to win the election tomorrow. So it isn't all hunky-dory here, and we're seeing the same uh, misguided uh, urges around the world as if somehow we can section ourselves off from one another when the earth is on fire. Um, the only proper response is to get everyone in the circle so that we can guide ourselves through this extremely perilous moment that it, we, it is, is upon us. It is upon us. It's not coming. It's already here. And so um, how do we combat or dismantle or um, uh, disarm those urges to shut walls, create borders, um, erect uh, divisions between people? That's probably the most, uh, the deepest question of um, the urgency to practice deep medicine, which requires collective organizing and action across divisions that were created through colonial mindsets. Thank you. And the last question I wanted to ask is just about the connections you've maybe been able to make at Terra Madre and whether you've been able to forge connections that are potential opportunities for you or other people to begin organizing back home. The most awesome part about Terra Madre are all the people who are here from around the world. And so many people who are engaged in struggles around land and around the protection of seeds, the protection of their food ways. Um, and that for me has been incredibly inspiring. I had the fortune of meeting Marineji Jaruna from the Amazon, who is uh, a leader in her tribal community to protect the Amazon from what's going to be the largest gold mine on planet Earth, an open pit mine just insane. Um, her her uh, community was impacted by the damming of the this tributary of the Amazon. So the Amazon has 20% of the world's fresh water running in it. Uh, these people who are fighting for the right to protect their ways of living are actually fighting for the right of all of humanity to live in a sane way on this earth. Um, so it's been extremely inspiring to meet a bunch of different community members who are, are working and, and to just share our knowledge and share our stories. That's been the most exciting part. That's wonderful. Anything else you want to share or add before we wrap up? Um, I guess just that at some point very soon, we will need to engage in a strike, a climate strike. And, and, and this is, and, and as we look at the lack of action on the part of government. We can't wait for government or corporations to offer us their wimpy solutions of driving electric cars or drinking out of a stainless steel straw. These are not the solutions 
that we need. We need to transform this economic system. We need to show the irrelevance of colonial capitalism to a world with sanity. Um, and we need to insist upon a system of care. And that will require not participating. That will require direct action. That will require withholding our labor. And it needs to start as soon as possible. So that's, that's, what I, that's my last word. That's the deep medicine of a climate strike. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and for your enlightening work. To everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. You can listen to more of Heritage Radio Network on tour's coverage of Terra Madre and other food events around the globe, wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thank you to Slow Food and the Italian Trade Agency for hosting me here in Terra Madre. Heritage Radio Network on tour is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. HRN On Tour is powered by Simplecast. This episode of HRN On Tour was produced in part by generous funding from the Julia Child Foundation.